Welcome to the Match Cup Podcast, the movie podcast where we take two movies with the exact same rate. Mm, no, that's not true anymore. That is not true. We're changing <laughs> it up in the third season. Oh, God. <laughs> do we want to do that again or just keep that the way it is? Keep it the way it is. I, I love the flying by the seat of the pants, <laughs> showing people behind the scenes. Uh, we're taking two movies with similar theming. And matching them up against each other. My name is Aaron. I'm here with my friend and co-host, Matt. Hello. And we're here with our guest uh, friend, uh, sometimes friend, sometimes co-host, Jack. Cool. Hello. Yes, I'm Jack. Hello, Jack. Uh, So before we get started with today's episode, if you have a movie or matchup that you would like us to watch, you can reach us at MatchCut on Twitter or MatchCutPod at gmail.com. So... Gentlemen, uh, what stories have you been getting into this week? I'll let you take it away, Jack. Cool. Um, I've been back into, if it counts, I would say cyberpunk at this point. Um, just going through that game at the moment, uh, enjoying it for what it is and you know where it's going with Johnny and everything. I'm not super far. I am still in act two, but I've been mostly enjoying my time with it, bugs aside. Um, and uh, yeah, I've just been enjoying that. I also rewatched Johnny Mnemonic, like... <laughs> two nights ago or something when I couldn't sleep and it was a very good idea. And I still nice. love monofilament whips as it turns out. <laughs> Too bad that the mono wire kind of sucks in cyberpunk. Yep. <laughs> All about some gorilla arms, baby. Nope. I am a mantis blade stand. I'm going to, I'm going to have gorilla arms in this, in my latest playthrough, but I was, severely disappointed the mono wire cannot be used to garrot people from stealth like it's what's stealthy about a wire that is a single <laughs> monofilament i mean honestly <laughs> yeah the uh <laughs> the electrically charged gorilla fists are actually much quieter they are that, yeah <laughs> you know just realism ah uh, sure like cars that fall from the sky mm-hmm yeah, it happens all the time. You don't drive. <laughs> you don't know what's going Speaking on them roads. Speaking of driving. <laughs> right. Wow, you're just going to cut Aaron and I off. Wow. No, I'm being wow. <laughs> we don't get to share. No. People probably hear enough of, out of the two of us anyways. Do they, though? Listen to my <laughs> voice. <laughs> the fact that we're on season three says not enough yet. <laughs> how about how about you matt what have you been uh, into? i finished gravity falls the kids show in whoa, heavy whoa. quotation marks um uh and that's good it, it makes me wish that they're like the living in the pacific northwest makes me wish that there was more actual mystery on the e- on, in the inland part of the pacific northwest because <laughs> once you're e- uh, east of the cascades it's basically just rolling hills doesn't Alan Wake also take place in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, it's making it's, that up. It takes place in um, something Washington, but it's based on Caldera Lake, uh, Oregon, which is okay. one of the only Caldera Lakes in in the world, um, or at least on the West Coast. So it's an amalgam. It's it's going for that Twin Peaks, this kind of spooky, weird, quirky place that doesn't quite exist in reality. Gotcha. 
I, don't, I keep telling Jack to play Alan it, Wake it's because on the he list. loves Gravity Falls. And actually, and at the top of the list now. <laughs> like, it's the next thing I'm going to be doing. Nice. People think it's a place of magic and mystery and the supernatural. <laughs> and racism. <laughs> Did Isn't you know everywhere? that Portland and Oregon specifically was created as a white ethno state and literally the only state in the country that tried to pass laws outlawing black people from living there? <laughs> Fantastic. By fantastic, I mean it's not. Thanks, Fantastic Oregon. racism. <laughs> uh, yeah. You can also thank Portland, Oregon for having the, the country's first police union, which was founded by actual American Nazis. <laughs> uh, now I'm sad. <laughs> Cheer uh, I also started up Doom Patrol on HBO Max. Uh, pretty fun so far. The effects are kind of cheap, which seems hmm. to be a through line with a lot of DC TV shows. Yeah. <laughs> but I, like, I, I haven't watched Supergirl, but I've seen some of the special effects that they put on that show, and it's it's a thing. I mean, at least with um, Doom Patrol, it's because they're getting class actors like Alan Tudyk, Brendan Fraser, and Timothy Dalton to be in it. So it's like, well, at least, you know, the effects aren't good, but the acting is chef Italian kissing hand. <laughs> <laughs> There's... There's no there's no such thing as too much money to get Brendan Fraser back to acting. And he's doing a real good job. Uh, I am enjoying his his turn in that so far. Nice. But uh Aaron, what have you been getting up to? I have been playing AI Dungeon. <laughs> is what <laughs> I what I've been doing. And apparently I oversell that entire thing to everyone I talk to. And raise their expectations up, but um, I, I for one appreciate the random message of just <laughs> yeah I'm I'm hooked on AI dungeon no you got to just try it no no really you got to just try it yeah so um, for those of you who don't know it's it's a uh, AI generated um, text adventure kind of similar to Zork if if you know what that is and a lot of early dungeon stuff. But instead of having predefined commands, the AI takes in your commands and generates an adventure for you. And, you know, sometimes it goes off the rails and you kind of got to give it some, some kind of got to try to fence it in a little bit. But it's a, you, it's a box of chocolates. You never quite know what you're going to get. And I've been enjoying that. And it's, uh, like basically I've been writing like all week it's been in, it's been thrown at an AI and, and, you know, it has some interesting things to say about it, but <laughs> psychic links with formula one cars. <laughs> yeah. It, it, you know, formula one kind of went in a speed racer direction, but you know, that was the one I would decided I was going to yes. And the AI. So I'm just like, yeah, this is happening now, as opposed to going back and saying, no, 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 no. No and one floats helmets with their minds. It really didn't want you to actually do the race. <laughs> no, it was more interested in my dead parents coming back wow. and interrupting the race. <laughs> <laughs> and forgetting that it was a race. And for some reason, there was a Toyota Camry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, they raced they race you know, the Camry those, in NASCAR. Those racing Camrys. <laughs> right. It also keeps you deciding that your characters are women. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm up for it. 
but you know <laughs> the bears <laughs> yeah there's a secret cabal of bears that invaded my apartment in another in another story in the matrix uh, <laughs> but you know who else doesn't drive a camry <laughs> Six Segway, bro. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's um, about as good as you would get out of AI Dungeon. So, <laughs> when suddenly you spot a Camry and Steve McQueen pops out, because this episode's matchup is about solitary loners, organized crime, and ripping through city streets. So, hop in your Mustang, rev the engine, and stare wordlessly into the camera. It's time for Bullet versus Drive. So, how did you guys experience these movies before watching them for the podcast? So it's interesting. Um, I had seen Bullet a few times, mostly with my grandma, actually, because she enjoys movies from that era. And um, it had been about a decade um, since I had seen it um, to watch it for this podcast. And I've always enjoyed it as a film. Um, And I always thought Steve McQueen was cool as hell and all that. But I was like in my early teens when I was you know, watching it the first time. So I had a very different perspective of that sort of thing to contrast um, on the subject of drive. I actually um, had not seen it until I had moved here. So I had only seen it like a year ago or so um, Mm. when Matt lent me the Blu-ray and was like, yeah, you should just watch this. (laughs) And I absolutely love it because the soundtrack is very much in my, you know, um, kind of, uh, area of wheelhouse yeah um and it became a thing that i sort of just embraced and loved and uh it kind of surprised me how much i liked it because i didn't realize what it was going to be when i went into it yeah it's a strange one uh for me i had uh i'd never seen bullet before i you know had heard of it had heard the the chase scenes referenced i think i may have seen some clips from it um and playing driver parallel lines was probably the closest I got to it. <laughs> um, Drive, I had seen, I think, pretty soon after it came out. Um, I think I got the DVD through Netflix. So, in Man, in remember that when time, people use Netflix for DVDs? And <laughs> yeah, that? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, and, of course, you know, like, I wanted to dress up as gosling's character for halloween and i you know i spent some time looking for that jacket online and then i'm just like that's ah, too expensive i'm not gonna yeah, you can you can find etsy knots knockoffs now you know that the it's not as hot but they don't look nearly as good as his you know champagne colored quilted right it's pretty tough uh Matt, I think you had seen both of them before. Shockingly, I had seen both movies before in this podcast. Um, noted, noted movie watcher, Matt. <laughs> Weird. I should have a. You know, we should host a movie podcast together, Aaron. What? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. What a novel yeah. idea! It is so novel. Um, with Bullet, it was definitely one of those things. Like my father got me into cars, as I, you know, mentioned wanting to build a car together with him. Uh, of a recreation of the bullet Mustang in modern times. But um, it was that movie that he would, you know, make sure to turn on what was on like speed network. Remember that Mm -hmm. network? That's now just like the car fixing channel, basically. (laughs) Yeah. Um, That would come on. And I was definitely like either a preteen teen first seeing it. And it was like Mm -hmm. one of those things, like I was just interminably bored the whole time. And except for the car chase. Because, like, 
it's one of those things that I feel you need some age under you to understand what's going on and just having the focus to pay attention in the of the story that's happening in front of you. Um, mm-hmm. So I didn't really enjoy it until my adult life watching it again. And I own it on Blu-ray um, and then drive. Didn't see it in theaters, saw a trailer for it on the Xbox live rental video marketplace. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, this is interesting. Wait, Albert Brooks is in it. And so like, I showed my mom the trailer and like, mom, you want to watch this movie? And we're like, yeah. So my mom and I in my room watched the movie and we're both like, that was good. Not what we were expecting, but good. (laughs) And, you know, watch it and digested it more. And so. My mom asked if she should watch Drive. And I'm just like. "Mm." Um, It it was kind of funny because while I was rewatching it, I'm like, mom, you got to watch Drive. (laughs) It's on Prime now. You should watch Drive. Oh, it's on Amazon Prime? Uh, with ads, it's sponsored by IMDb TV. So go figure on that. Oh, we hitting the algorithm, boys! <laughs> yeah, we notorious top, notorious non-sponsor of this podcast, mm-hmm. IMDb. Ah, uh, yes, notorious <laughs> coward sponsor. <laughs> um, but yeah, my mom likes like action movies and things like that, and I was just like, just a warning, you know, it's really gory. And she goes, "Thanks for the parental control." <laughs> Yeah, it's the same warning I would give my mom, except that would probably get her to not watch it. No, my mom's just like, great, I'm going to watch it. I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, see, I, I have an interesting uh, strategy with my mom. She likes watching movies with specific actors, so I've tricked her into watching a few films. I tricked her into watching Mad Max Fury Road by saying, hey, mom, do you want to watch the Academy Award-nominated film Fury Road? It's got Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy in it. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> and so she ended up watching it. She liked it, which is like, you tricked me. <laughs> it's like, I did, but I didn't lie. <laughs> and the court uh, reporter pl- reads back my testimony. You will see that I did not, in fact, perjure myself. <laughs> I, I The movie is... Fury Road. It does star Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy. It was nominated for many Academy Awards. It won six of them. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's a, it's a good movie. It is. We should talk about it sometime. Um, so for today's Bacon Number Fun Fact, um, as far as crossing the generations between Ryan Gosling and Steve McQueen, uh, only two two jumps. You got Ryan Gosling in The Notebook with James Garner. James Garner was in The Great Escape with Steve McQueen. It's just that simple. As far as IMDb ratings, Bullet is rated a 7.4. Drive is rated a 7.8. Agree? Disagree? We'll find out right after this break.
talk about some movies. Matt, I'm told you've prepared a report on Bullet. Would you like to share it with the class? Bullet is a 1968 movie written by Alan Trussman and Harry Kleiner from a novel by Robert L. Fish and directed by Peter Yates, starring Steve McQueen, Robert Vaughn, and Jacqueline Bissett, and a 1968 Mustang GT in Highland Green. Writer Alan Trussman is best known for this movie, The Thomas Crown Affair, as well as The Thomas Crown Affair Remake. Writer Harry Kleiner is known for The Fantastic Voyage, Le Mans, Another McQueen Vehicle, and Red Heat. Director vehicle, Pete, I get it. <laughs> Director Peter Yates is best known for this movie and the 80s cult classic Kroll, as well as a whole bunch of other minor films of various rapport and whatnot. He was just kind of like a working director. Yeah. I've seen The Thomas Crown Affair. The original. I've seen Kroll. The remake. <sighs> You're welcome. They're both good, I will say, but um, you should definitely see the original. District Attorney Chalmers, Vaughn, has a star witness he wants to testify in front of the Senate subcommittee, Johnny Ross, to the blow the lid off the organization, the Mafia. To protect Ross, he calls upon the best detective in the San Francisco Police Department, Frank Bullitt, McQueen. But only a few hours into the babysitting job, Ross is murdered and another detective is left seriously wounded. Now it's a race against time to find out just what was going on before Chalmers has Bullet's badge. Very accurate calling it the organization. That's what the Chicago mob was called. Mm -hmm. I know because I read a history of, well, the New York families, but they talk about Chicago. Anyways, Drive is a 2011 movie written by Hossein Amini based on the book by James Salas and directed by Nicholas Winding Refn, starring Ryan Gosling uh, Carrie Mulligan, Brian Cranston, and Albert Brooks. Hussein Amini is best known for some not-so-great movies like Snow White and the Huntsman, 47 Ronin, and The Showman. He's been tapped to write episodes for the upcoming Obi-Wan Kenobi series. Director Nicholas Reffin is best known for not having enough vowels in his last name, <laughs> as well as Only God Forgives, The Neon Demon, Bronson, and Valhalla Rising. An unnamed driver works as a Hollywood stuntman and mechanic. Moonlight moonlights as LA's premier five-minute getaway driver. After a chance meeting with his mostly normal neighbor and an offer to drive legitimately for an almost legitimately funded race team, the driver sees a way out of his shady dealings. However, crime is in is in his nature, and just when he thought he was out, they pull him back in. So. Initial thoughts on the movies. How about that uh, bullet opening credit sequence? I definitely like the style that's put into both of these films. They both have a very clear vision of what they want to do with the the frames and the, the blocking and all that. I mean, there have been video essays on drives, blocking and usage of space within the frame to show the relationships um, mm -hmm. I, I think there was a little more experimental stuff going on in Bullet just because of the, the nature of the era of Hollywood filmmaking. Um, yeah. But like the, the opening credits of Bullet, very stylish. Uh, you know, you got credits just being presented over action that is setting up the movie. And that was kind of pretty new at the time. Mo you know, we're just then getting out of the era of the 50s and obviously this is the latter half of the, the, the 60s decade. But the old Hollywood style of here is your title cards with like a painted matte background and like the, the very like assistant director, director, like you're still getting all that information, but it was in a more dynamic Saul Bass influenced way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
director of photography, William A. Fraker, who did uh, Bullet, also did War Games, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and 1941. So, yeah, kind of an illustrious career in photography after the, you know this film. Like, Yeah. I will say the one thing that I noticed watching Drive is uh, there's no helicopter shots, which, like, in a modern movie you would expect, and you get in Drive – um, but no helicopter shots and bullet for those uh, so those chase scenes. Well, that's because they like you literally couldn't do helicopter shots then. Like the the big thing with bullet, especially for the chase scenes, is it was pioneering how to do dynamic car chase scenes. Before it was always like a static camera, the the cars rushing towards it, or it was like a green screen uh, backdrop mm-hmm. uh, or rear projection of them, you know, reacting in a car to something going on. Um, So to give you just a fun thing on the title sequence, specifically in regard to bullet, um, it was made by somebody named Pablo Farrow, who also did the opening title sequences for Dr. Strangelove, Philadelphia, uh, the Thomas crown affair, midnight cowboy (laughs) clockwork orange. So this was a person who um, had a very kind of unique look on how to present title um, sequences and why yeah. it was kind of just so impactful at the time and why it was so different. Um, one of the more fascinating things is, and uh, there's lots of like essays on this that you can find. Um, he kind of created it as this um, duality between criminality on the surface of a quote unquote civil society. And um, that is one of the big things that I think is kind of throughout the opening of bullet, which is why I find it so um kind of fascinating and interesting and it was very different obviously for the time um on the other side of things with drive um i really love the fact that it opens in the action and then goes into the credits um i think it establishes everything very well and it's very tension filled and um i believe matt you mentioned it was the chromatics i think you said that did the music that was uh, featured for the opening um for drive yeah, it's chromatics, tick of the clock. Yeah, so um, I think that that actually sets up the tension incredibly well um, before it goes right into my one of my favorite tracks, actually, of all time, which is Night Call by Kavinsky. Um, it featured very heavily in a lot of my night driving playlists when I was back east. Um, I know, Matt, um, I believe you used to play it a lot as well. I had that. I have the uh, the album that that's from, and I listened to it for four years driving to and from work. <laughs> Yeah, that so, was that was the one thing my brother knew like out of this movie. He's like, "Oh, that's where like Kavinsky got like their start." His start, it's one guy. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't sure, so yeah, he's their a start. he's a very French man. <laughs> um the uh, an interesting kind of contrast that I get to these films and Jack has differing opinions on this, but I'm curious to hear Aaron's thoughts that in drive the music is it's all licensed aside from one or two tonal pieces or like uh setting up moments uh but they kind of inform the the mood and the feelings of the uh the scenes i would say in bullet the music is just tonally there but not super important to the overall plot like a core concept of creating drive was the usage of licensed pop music. Mm -hmm. Whereas I don't necessarily think that that was too big of a thought put into the uh, creation of bullet. 
No, definitely not in the creation. It doesn't strike me as. I gotta say though, I I really liked like the bullet, like bullet being this like iconic early movie and me never having seen it before. It's kind of refreshing to go back to it and like recognize all the tropes that it like that it gets made that it gets parodied or or you know paid homage to like this just like bass heavy uh kind of funky tune over the intro you know and this is presumably the thing that started it or was at the very leading edge of it and it's 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 fun to see those things like done earnestly and and i i just like live instruments on a soundtrack or in in anything which isn't to say that you know electronic music is bad it's just it has a different feel for me and that intro song September. Yeah, that intro song and then the um the jazz flute when they're at that restaurant. Oh yeah. To, <laughs> to, to, to <laughs> yeah. I really expected that to because like the music was so high energy for a you know relatively minor scene like sitting in a restaurant i really expected some shit to go down i was like all right they're gonna cut away they're gonna keep the music over top and like some bad shit's gonna be happening somewhere else in the city but no just mcqueen gets hit in the face with that menu and that's about it which feels like a super improvised like they were just like okay we're shooting the scene in the restaurant and just there's not gonna be any dialogue so just ad lib everything and just have a conversation and like that's yeah. probably like a real waiter or something like that <laughs> accidentally being really nervous and hitting Steve McQueen in the face. You know, if Reddit was around back in 68, they'd just be like, uh, today I learned that Steve McQueen was actually hit in the face with that menu and just kept filming. <laughs> <laughs> um, probably, probably. Um, so I agree with, I, I do agree with the fact that the music for, um, bullet wasn't like a thing that was like this key thing before production began or anything. But um, I do find it to be a bit on the dynamic side because when um, certain characters are pursued and certain characters are doing the pursuing um, throughout it, uh, the music definitely lends itself to kind of setting what the character's mood is at the time, as well as what they are doing. So you'll see hi hats kick in um, at times when they are immediately pursuing certain people. Um, and I found that to be neat versus a lot of the more synth um, sided things in drive. Um, I don't think they're on like the same level, obviously, but I do think that the music for both films is kind of important in that it lends itself to the actual feel and blocking of the scenes themselves um, and what's going on in them. Yeah. One thing I think that uh, both these films kind of are the victim of just a flanderization of what people think they're about. So like when people think of bullet anymore, they, they just think of the car chase. And like, as my, you know, anecdotal story is like the only thing that held my interest as a younger kid was the car chase um, with drive. People either think of the soundtrack or the memes of like the real human being thing. <laughs> um, or like, Oh, that's like, yeah. Ryan Gosling car driver ones. Like he doesn't do a whole bunch of driving. There's the, the opening chase scene, there's the Mustang chase scene, and that's it. Those are the two chase scenes that exist in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. You know, bullets, the the chase scene is important to the overall plot, and not to say that they're not, but there was like, uh, do you think the chase scene in Bullet still holds up as 
one of the greatest or the greatest car chase scenes. Absolutely. I I think Um, I really, I mean, I think so with bullet, like knowing what it took to do it at the time, especially also, you know, with the fact that there were people literally in these vehicles with cameras trying to get these shots and how absolutely insane it was to, you know, especially in that era, um, drive on these streets and have all of the chaos occurring, you know, losing multiple hubcaps throughout (laughs) and having just all of this go down the way it does. Um, and you know, likely actually crashing these cars the way that they do without all the safety things that are in place nowadays, I think it a hundred percent holds up and barring all of that. I just think it's a generally exciting and well-filmed thing that doesn't feel like in the modern day, you know, shaky cam city. Cause Mm -hmm. the thing with modern chases nowadays to me is that it's always about, you know, shaky cam and trying to like force this dynamic nature to it. And to me, the chase and bullet feels a lot more real because in a sense it actually is. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say there's, it's a lot more raw and visceral, the chase scene and bullet. Like it feels more natural and real. Like the, the scene in the opening when, when the charger first peels off uh, and bullet is trying to, to follow him that cab, like go around, go around. Like, (laughs) you know, like, and you're just like, Oh, I know that, you know, those people on the road that are like, I'm going to be an arbiter of justice on the road. It's like, (laughs) ain't your business. Just leave it. Um, And then, you know, you get some of the, like the, 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 the camera vibrating is because they literally don't have, steady cam gimbals yet they don't have chase arms they don't have all these things that they have now and i think drive especially the mustang chase scene suffers from that because he's just quickly cutting a whole bunch you can barely tell what's what's actually happening i remember watching it with you aaron and Mm -hmm. like we we roll back once or twice because like there's terrible jump cuts and continuity errors that are occurring yes we, we mentioned that the hubcaps in bullet but like that's a minor thing you know it's still at I least mean, these two cars they do a pretty b- severe jump cut when that when True. the car he's chasing like sideswipes that other car and they cut to to nothing and then they pass that same green bug like four or five times like i sure. think it's tough it's hard to film a chase scene you know like it's legitimately difficult and you need to have like you know, whoever's driving that green bug is presumably a stunt driver and like knows how to work with the other people like coming up behind him. But and I th- go ahead. I just sorry. I just wanted to bring up like the reason you have kind of a more of a seat of your pants is a they are pioneering the the filming of chase scenes. Mm-hmm. B they are filming on actual San Francisco city streets early morning and do not have time with these to close these streets down to have absolute control like they do in drive. Yeah. Those, those are closed streets. That's probably Angeles crest forest or um, like a, a street in LA that is notable for filming that you can easily control everything that goes on there and close it down for a longer periods of time because it's not a vital street. Yeah. 
Right. And I, th- I think like I would put bullet of course, high up on the list for like everything it did for chase scenes and the way that it, it pioneered a lot of like the shots or the, or the tech or, you know, how you film a chase scene. But I don't think it stands up to some modern examples, which of course I can't provide to you right now. Cause I can't come up with it on the spot, but I think there are more interesting chase scenes because of what bullet did. So like with the historical context, it's up there, but I think without it, it, you know, it loses something. It's, it's, it's the first, it's a first draft. I, I'm going to, I'm going to hard sense. disagree with you there. I think, well, no, cause I think that any more that there is not a lot of thought put into car chase scenes. The closest example I can get is what um, uh, Edgar Wright did in Baby Driver, yeah. where he's mm-hmm. putting a lot of thought in the the framing and the beats and the the soundscape that those are all like thought of and like complete pictures in his head before going into it. And he definitely benefits from modern usage of you know helicopter shots and the chase arm definitely does assist him in certain things for a little bit more dynamic shots. However, I think a lot of chase scenes anymore rely way too much on reaction shots and, um, and just things that take you out of the, the feeling of the, the visceral nature of a car chase. One of the better, more modern examples I would say is probably Ronin by uh, John Frankenheimer starring mm-hmm. Robert De Niro, Jean Renault. Um, that has a lot of very visceral car chases that is shot in an old style way. And it's like, they literally just do not make movies like bullet, like Ronin anymore. They just don't, you use, you know, your, your chase cars, you use digital after effects, you use all these things for safety, for, for budgetary concerns, for, for production smoothness concerns, like, one thing I watch a lot is the stuntman react series from corridor digital. Cause I want to know like the artistry behind it and what makes a good fight scene, what makes a bad fight scene and all that. And one of the big things they talk about that makes really dynamic, interesting is giving the stunt people time to set up and work with the, the second unit or the primary principal photography unit to create these shots. And I don't think, Hollywood as a business anymore. You know, we're talking about 68 versus 2011 where Hollywood doesn't like to waste time in pre-production and pre-viz. Yeah. But I mean, Matt, don't you remember need for speed when they yeeted that Mustang off of the ramp, that car carrier, you know, (laughs) You don't remember that? <laughs> I vaguely even remember that film. And this is even going back. I'm pretty sure I liked that film. Yeah. And like, I mean, I, I liked the car chases in need for speed. If nothing else from that movie, yeah, cause that's fair, <laughs> but you know, that, that at least was a, was a callback to like practical where, you know, they wanted to use specific like supercar bodies. So they put them all on these like pre-made sleds and like tried to get it r- relatively practical as practical as you get nowadays. Yeah, and but I think what hurts that film is we are so oversaturated with like the the Fast and the Furious where they just CGI right. jump cars between buildings and do, you know, drop them out of planes and all that. It's like right. you can actually do that and it looks really good. But because the spectacle and like and it's not that they don't have the budget for it, but because we're so oversaturated with digital effects, it's like in 
Fast Five, that's the one with the bank vault, right? Mm-hmm. Like they had a practical rig that was a truck with that bank vault over it that they were driving around. But because we're so oversaturated, everyone, myself included, thought it was just CGI. Right. And that's one of my big criticisms too, I think, with films today. Like, I don't don't get me wrong, I like my random BS of having uh CGI soaked ridiculousness in like Hobbs and Shaw, for instance. Um <laughs> yeah, you know, having a bunch of cars tethered together attached to a helicopter is still rad and ridiculous and it has its place. But I do agree that, you know, having a practical effect of something being actually dropped or crashed or otherwise is far better and um, keeps me within a moment when it comes to certain films. And I think they lend themselves well by doing it. Right. But now we're saying Fast Five with practical effects like were too good or, no. you know. What I'm saying is that because CGI and the spectacle has gone so far out there that the actual practical effects are now buried so much in, you know, Mm -hmm. post effects, in, uh, you know, edits, in, in green screen technology that unless there is significant buzz beforehand that, hey, we did this for real, like in a Mad Max Fury Road case, that while there is compositing and matte painting and CG in that movie, the practical effects that make sense are practical. You know, the car crashes for the most part, the explosions and whatnot. Like there is a quality that has been lost in modern filmmaking. And we're kind of not discussing drive anymore. We are talking about solely the car chases from two movies, from two that, are, movies. that are more than car chases. Right. But um, one one last thing on practical effects, like I knew in Tenet, you know, I could see that that plane crash was was a practical effect. So I, th- I think there's still a, a spot for them out there. But it just feels like the only directors that can get away with it are the kind of directors that have like clout, you know, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, when um, right. and it. To a degree, that's was what Bullet was. Bullet is and Drive are both very intentional movies by these actors to showcase their acting. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. like before Bullet, not that Steve McQueen wasn't a known quantity, but he was in a lot of a fair amount of ensemble pieces, and his style of acting was to always make you look at him in frame. And him being the lead in like a very small um cast excuse me a very small cast movie his you have he has to rely on his ability to act and i think ryan gosling very specifically chose refing and that's something both of these guys did they sought out these directors to work with and they found a script that they wanted to adapt into a vehicle for them no pun intended um to showcase their their ability where uh, and you know drive is Ryan Gosling trying to escape this pretty boy notebook and like uh, be, be taken as a serious actor in my opinion. Right. Um, I agree though. Um, one thing I was going to also mention um, Steve McQueen, like one of the other things that he did was he specifically kept putting his head out like by the window um, during that car chase scene specifically to show audiences that it was him actually driving in it. Right. Which is kind of interesting because he wanted to make sure that people knew it was him. And that's pretty mind blowing to me, especially for the time, because people 
you know, are going to even then chalk it up to, oh, this was just, you know, somebody else doing this. And um, it goes back to Steve McQueen, you know, trying to be this leading man and trying to break free of, you know, previous kind of preconceived notions about him and becoming this star in a way. And you can, you, you mentioned, um, Matt, that um, he always does things to kind of keep your eye on him because yeah. he's just so dynamic all the time. Um, there's a scene where um, when he's walking into that restaurant, like you can see him fidgeting. Mm-hmm. And at one point, like there are some attractive women who walk by and he gives a look at them. <laughs> and it's one of those things where he's always as he, he does this thing well, where he always keeps, you know, your eye on him. And on the same token in drive, I think Ryan Gosling does a very good job of that as well. Um constantly while deadpan in nature a lot of the time um he is always doing something with his body language to keep you on your toes and on the edge of your seat because he feels more like this coiled spring that's kind of ready to pop throughout the entire film i think with drive though that's a lot of the drive nicholas winning reffing is a smaller film director and like a big thing like i've listened to the director's commentary on drive and it sounds like there was many months where he worked with each individual actor to create the character to create Mm -hmm. the the backstory where they come from and incorporate that in even if it's not like dialogue scenes or whatnot it's like uh ron perlman specifically talks about like i knew like a lot of these guys that i'm acting like growing up in the Bronx. So like mm-hmm. I'm bringing that into there. And it's like, even if it's not specifically stated in the film, like he's bringing a lot of personal experience into that with some of the stuff he did with Ryan Gosling. Um, I, the source for this is refing himself. And I don't put it past refing to be a bullshit artist. So he says that Ryan, he gave Ryan Gosling uh, the the ability to find any car he wanted that, that was going to be the driver's car. And after considerations for so many things were accounted for, they didn't really find anything they liked in the the car, the motor pool at the, the studio. So apparently he found this car in a junkyard and the production company bought it. And then they brought it to a warehouse where Gosling took it apart and rebuilt it himself as pre-production. And the only thing he didn't do was the transmission. The only source I have for that is refing, but there is behind the scenes footage of Gosling working on that Chevelle Malibu uh, 77, I think Chevelle mm-hmm. Malibu behind the scenes in some production footage. So there is a degree of mechanical understanding that he has with that car. And I'd, I want to know if Gosling bought that car or was given that car by the production. Cause that would be cool to me, but I think there's a very serious and strong intent in all the blocking and framing choices that was thought out ahead of time with uh, Gosling, with Brooks, with with uh, Perlman, with uh, right. with all these actors, with Mulligan, that nothing is left up to chance in Drive. It is very meticulously crafted and intentional, whereas Bullet that him looking at those women, maybe it was written in the script or maybe it was just McQueen doing it that take or that cheeky little look back and forth when he's stealing the newspaper from the news box or the paper box, whatever they're called. I think they both have very slow intentional moments. Like 
Oh yeah, um, I'm not saying they don't, but I'm saying the the point. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. Is is no. my habit? Um, the point I'm making is everything is thought down to exacting, excruciating detail in Drive, whereas mm-hmm. Bullet, like, well, there is intention in some of the slower dialogue scenes or some of the in in the framing because that's so new to the genre of movies. I don't think it was as meticulously planned. Like, okay, you're going to give this like solitary look and you're going to wait this many beats and whatnot. I think there was a more avant-garde of let the conversation flow as you've rehearsed it and maybe improvise some things, you know, like, uh, but I'll let Aaron get to his point. Yeah. I, I think bullet like drive is obviously, I think, very I think both of these movies are obviously very have very slow scenes where they want you to take a a chance to like inhabit the space you know to use arty farty terms but I think some of the slow stuff like with McQueen's girlfriend you know like hey find this the water pipe pressure and how much you know head head lift you're gonna get out of a five inch pipe or like the amount of time you spend staring at medical equipment. I also think that those some of those doctors or nurses like are actual doctors yes. or nurses. The, all the because, police, yeah. aside from the key players, are actual San Francisco Police Department, and so I wouldn't. Uh, I would say that the doctors and nurses are as well for the most part. And I think, uh, yeah, because there's a there's a nurse in that operating room who like takes a pair of uh, I guess forceps puts a puts a suturing needle in there and starts like threading it and yeah. I'm just like that's that's not that is either the best extra work I've ever seen in a movie ever or that's an actual nurse it was praised at the time actually for being one of the most accurate depictions of a scene in a hospital ever yeah and it's it's it comes across that way, but yeah, there's a lot of like slow methodical shots. I think in the same way they do in drive where it's like, okay, you know, take a minute and have it. This character's head, like here's what they're looking at. Here's the situation we're in. And I, I, it really, it worked more for me in drive than it did in bullet bullet. It felt kind of like, why are we still doing this? Whereas drives whole attitude. And I think that speaks to your point of, of ref and really like, setting out to do this from the start, a lot of the slower scenes felt more intentional and more Mm -hmm. purposeful than maybe the happy accident that bullet was. Right. So um, with drive, there's a deliberate dreamlike quality that characters really aside from the main players do not exist. Other than the main cast, basically no one has any lines. Yeah. Yeah. And like they're also the main cast doesn't have any lines. Well, Gosling doesn't. Um, the dreamlike quality is deliberate to be like what is real, and it's going for a very artistic mm-hmm. kind of hearkening back to the idea of French noir. Whereas French noir is still very new when Bullet is being made, and you get what, but what they're going for is Art Nouveau and vermicillitude. What the the key difference with bullet and drive to me is bullet feels like this is every other month for this character. Mm. He gets in these mm. high profile cases and to him, it's just the job. It is, he compartmentalizes his life and, you know, occasionally this crazy stuff happens, but 
with drive. It's like this world does not exist really outside the realm of the film. And like everything is left up to 100% interpretation while there is interpretation encouraged in bullet. Like I get a very real sense of like, this is just another, another series of events in this detective's life. They establish some, some background for him. They establish, you know, like what could be occurring in the future for him. Um, yeah. Dreamlike, I think definitely yeah. very accurately describes drive. Very much so. And again, going to the intention of the film's purpose, like the scorpion on his back, like I think I brought up to you, Aaron, uh, like facetiously, but seriously, and they even reference it within the movie. They do. The scorpion is intentional because it's the story of the scorpion and the frog. Yeah. The, the Ryan Gosling is the scorpion. He wants to change, but he doesn't know how. And mm-hmm. so the second things start going bad, he falls back on his nature. And his nature is to strike and to, and his chance head, for head stomp a dude in the elevator. Yeah. yeah. His, chan- <laughs> his chance for, for normalcy leaves at that scene. He was trying to hold on to a, a version of it and whatnot. So, and then after that, he just kind of goes full bore and then, you know, wears a weird, creepy mask for no reason. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Whereas, like, you don't kind of get those inconsistencies with McQueen as Frank Bullet. Like, right. Um, something that I think is really neat about Bullet is Frank Bullet is a detective that wants to do the job right. He doesn't want to take shortcuts. He does. He plays by his own rules, but his rules are more about getting to the bottom of things rather than the cowboy cops you see now. Like the establishment's holding me back, man. <laughs> He's the antithesis to a Dirty Harry. And it's funny is Dirty Harry and Frank Bullet are both based on the same guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the detective, uh, San Francisco police detective Fra- uh, Dave Toshi, who is played uh. by uh, Mark Ruffalo in Zodiac. Right. Oh, uh, yes. The duality of man, dirty, hairy, and bullet. Well, <laughs> you mentioned Zodiac, so I'm going to mention this. And you've also mentioned this to me. Um, you know, the scene where in Zodiac, the character and, of Dave Tashi walking out being like. Walking out of. Walking out of, out of, of dirty. A special ha- screening for the police department of dirty hair. Yeah. Yeah. And just being like, this is not okay. Um, kind of cements this idea of, oh. This was the turning point where cops went from being, you know, people who kept the peace and work within a set of laws to, oh, the laws are holding me back. I should be able to do what I need to do in order to get the job done. Right. And, you know, the the comment Mark Ruffalo's character makes that I believe is informed by Dave Toshi's true feelings was, you know, uh, Gray Smith walks out, uh, uh, you know, not that long before the full the full theater lets out. And is like, oh, he he shoots the bad guy. He's like, oh, great. Due process just thrown out the window. Mm-hmm. Then and, a bunch of cops see Dirty Harry for real. And then they're just like, I am dirty. I am the thin blue line. And then yep. yeah. it's all downhill from this. Exactly. <laughs> Where that, that's not really what policing was idealistically at the time. You know, this is before poli- police unions proliferate throughout the country. The only police union that exists going back to the intro is the Portland police union, yep. which they're scumbags and dirtbags. <laughs> um, at least they previously were. I don't know the quality of the characters now. Wink. Um, and, you know, the cops were doing a service to the, the community, at least 
cops like D- Dave Tashi that Frank Bullitt was modeled after where, right. you know, there's constant pressure within the narrative of, of Bullitt for him to toe the line and do the, the like make these political moves that will be really helpful for the right. department in the future. And he's not about that. Like the deliberately waiting for the police captain to get on the line, to hang up on him. And, and only answering to his, his captain, his direct superior captain, yes. which I feel like this is a, Good time to mention how incredibly scummy Chalmers is as a character and oh. how much I love that. Every time Robert Vaughn as uh, uh, assist, uh, D.A. Chalmers comes on screen, he is trying to throw his weight around. He's vaguely racist and wants things to be done his way. Yeah, because he specifically mentions that the doctor looks, quote unquote, too young, who happens to be black. And there's that moment where he's just the doctor actually overhears it. And that's why the doctor also goes along with bullets plan to hide the the body as a John Doe until Monday to give him some time to figure out what the heck's going on. Yeah. Um, you have a similar thing of uh, in both movies of uh, figures of authority presenting themselves as cleaner than they actually are. Mm hmm. There's an implication within Bullet that Chalmers was, at the very least, uh, complicit in probably taking a bribe from Johnny Ross mm-hmm. to get this, get him out here in Witpro, but didn't know that Johnny Ross was playing him. Yeah. And then there is the uh, explicit nature in Drive where characters are trying to be something they're not. Shannon is trying to be a uh, stock car team manager. The driver is trying to be a legitimate driver and not a criminal. Max Brooks's character, what's his character? Bernie Rose. Bernie Rose is trying to be a businessman and a film producer when he's really a gangster. Yeah. And then look at Nino, um, which Ron Perlman has specifically mentioned. Um, he was, you know, being a Jew growing up in Brooklyn. Um, these wannabe types who wanted to be Italian gangsters. And he goes into the racism that he faced as well and how much he wants to be uh, bigger than the, you know, Italians on the East coast. And in a way his stealing of the money was sticking it to them, which is a very pivotal point for drive. Yeah. That's when the movie goes from like pretty typical, like, okay, zero to 60, maybe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, everyone's got their true nature. They're all trying to change and they can't. Yeah. And I, I'd say the only one that is a normal person is Carrie Mulligan's character. Irene. Irene. Yeah. I would say both these movies drive a little less so, but bullet for sure. The, the, the female leads are kind of not the point of the film, which mm. is disappointing because like there could there could have been a stronger dynamic in Bullet of you know the this girlfriend realizing that Frank Bullet is not just this charming witty detective like he's he he deals with his dark side all the time and like maybe that's going to rub off on him yeah mm-hmm. and I think Drive, there's that, again, the great moment where the the elevator door is open and and Ryan Gosling has this pleading, like, almost puppy dog eyes as he's covered in the blood of a man whose skull he caved in. (laughs) Like, 
please accept me and, and love me. And Carrie Mulgan looks on in horror at him. And then there's the, the character of um, Blanche played by Christina Hendricks, who's just supposed to be eye candy. Yeah. And Reffing originally wanted to cast a porn star in the role. What's Sasha Gray doing nowadays? She could probably do it. Oh, good God. But the point, but so Blanche, so the interesting thing with the inclusion of Blanche is like Blanche knew what was going to go down for them somewhat. I can't say entirely. She was set up, but like, man, the changeover to violence that happens from that moment when the robbery happens to the motel room. It just, the movie does like a real, I I can't say like a full 180, but it really does change tone. You know, from the moment that um, uh, Standard gets shot to the end of the movie, it goes from being a very, we know there's some undercurrents of things going on to a very explicit use of violence and what is going on in it. Also, and, both both these movies having a shotgun put to great yeah. use in a in a CD motel room. Yeah, that's what I was. So it, it's interesting you mentioned that because that's what I was going to mention next. Is Bullet also has that scene where you know the killer walks up to the motel room and just shoots the fake version of the witness and an officer um, who was in on it to clean up loose ends. And it's also touching on the whole cleaning up loose ends thing. And it uses violence, although drive is far more violent because obviously they can get away with a lot more nowadays. Um, But they both use their violence to great effect. It's used as a way to take you into this moment of, oh, shit, this is what's going down. Um, Things are different now. So where is this going to go? Um. You know, speaking to a point that Aaron brought up is, you know, Bullet being kind of an Ur film, you know, that is referenced visually or thematically and whatnot so much. Like the thing that really strikes me is how much Michael Mann kind of carries some of this through, especially in Heat at the very ending of Heat. Yeah. Where you have the the Ross character and the um, uh, Frank Bullet character at an airport chasing on the runway with like similar lighting going on to what happens in Heat with Macaulay and... Um, uh, Vincent Hanna. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's good stuff. And it's weird, you know, for me watching it out of order and, and it creates a weird relationship with the film of like, Oh, right. This isn't overdone at the time of this film. And it's, yeah, it's, I think we should I, in- institute a new rule on the podcast. If chronologically, always watch the ear- the earlier film first. Sure, I assume that was the rule for some reason. To be honest with you, <laughs> it's something um, we had usually discussed and did. But interesting. But yeah, I because I feel that does kind of lend itself better to talking about these sorts of things. I mean, like it it probably wouldn't matter in my case because, like. I've already seen, well, I've already seen drive and just like not having seen bullet first in my life, you know, is, is more what I'm talking about Fair. rather than like the order I watched them in like this week. Mm-hmm. But like, I, you know, bullet constantly gets referenced still. I was watching rewatching with uh, someone, the uh, first episode of Lucifer on uh, Netflix 
Mm -hmm. and they go to a, a movie shoot and there's a car chase and the actor is dressed in a blue turtleneck sweater with a shoulder rig slacks and, <laughs> and chucka uh. boots. It's like, and then the, the show Alcatraz, the uh, right. season finale that becomes the series finale because they canceled the show. The main character is a blonde haired, blue eyed woman in a blue turtleneck sweater with a shoulder rig who ends up in a, a car chase in a Mustang <laughs> against yeah. a charger in the streets of San Francisco. It was very deliberate homage to the film. Yeah. I, I knew in, in bullet when that blue turtleneck came on, I was like, Oh shit, yeah. it's about to go down, <laughs> which is kind of incredible that a fashion choice can be a signifier of something. Yeah. In both these films. Yes. Very, very distinctive. Uh, when, where, uh, when the driver puts on the jacket in drive, that's when he's there to do the, his work. You know, all, all his scenes of being pleasant for the most part, he doesn't have it on or, you know, he takes it off shortly after mm -hmm. for the most part. Yep. Yeah. Um, I also think it's incredibly um, telling on the fact that he, in the very beginning of the movie, he reverses the jacket because it is reversible to blend in and just I knew it walk was out. reversible. And when it's covered in blood later on, he never reverses it to hide it or anything. He just wears it. Well, it's being your true nature. Yeah. Whereas I think he had been living a, a lie, a very puss in boots, becoming the exactly. mask kind of thing. He was hoping that through Irene and uh, Benicio that he could get this normalcy. Uh, my favorite pet theory that I have is that this is just what happens to this guy every few years. <laughs> you know, he, he just wanders to a new city, wanders to the, the closest mechanics garage and like shows his skills off and then gets a job and keeps working and eventually gets into trouble and wanders to the next city. <laughs> yeah. And both have that. Uh, there's that quality to both, in my opinion. And again, we touched on this, obviously, in the early description and everything else. Um, just these two being very solitary characters trying to compartmentalize and control their lives in very specific ways with very specific core rules to themselves. But at the end of it, they have to breach their rules. And while different sides of the law and different ways of kind of fully approaching it, for instance, Bullet only fires his gun and pulls his gun at the very end of the movie. Only after um, someone else is murdered and the guy is clearly still a threat. Right. That is the only time he actually has to become violent. And that's kind of a really good setup and core to that character. You can see the entire film that he's trying to, as you said, compartmentalize things into places, keeping his girlfriend out of it, keeping the parts of his life separate. And at the end of it, he has to finally pull his gun and do the thing that he had been trying to not do the entire time. And while it happens sooner in drive, I think he also has to, he doesn't really pull a gun, but he becomes incredibly violent when he has to, once violence is done to him and the people around him. And that's a trope that just kind of works as a through line through both. I think mm -hmm. you you get a hint of it in Drive that the level of violence this guy is capable of when the the the, the guy hits him up at the diner mm. that he's eating at, right. and he is like, "Leave me alone, or basically I'll bash your face in." And like, <laughs> yeah, it, it and then you see like, oh, he would have actually done that to that guy. Yeah, it's the potentiality for violence. 
where the like, like that's just simmering barely contained mm-hmm. under him whereas it's kind of a casual part of bullet until you see no he's willing to use his gun yeah, yeah. and then bullet is this simmering cool kind of type and what, but he never steve mcqueen a cool character no way. right right i know shocking controversial <laughs> hot take truly um but bullet um is very even keeled throughout the entire film while i find ryan gosling and drive to be absolutely terrifying in <laughs> oh, most yeah. of the film yeah i mean that's not the way that like the cool crime guys around him like treat him they try kind of treat him like an idiot yeah but and that is mistake. <laughs> truly though their last yeah <laughs> Uh, so we start getting to, uh, some final thoughts here. Yeah. That was a pretty long discussion. Sorry about that folks. Thanks for sticking around. Yeah. We appreciate it. Um, oh, I will mention one of the things I never knew existed was that little like immersion drop in heater that he puts in his coffee mug. <laughs> like just real quick. I never even knew that was a thing. And I was just like, what the? you can probably, still buy them. I looked them up uh, on Amazon. I was going to say they probably cause a lot of house fires. Yeah, it's like bizarre. It's like, (laughs) let me just take this thing that is directly plugged into the wall and drop it into liquid intentionally. (laughs) What a wild, carefree time. (laughs) Uh, So, you guys have one that you preferred over the other? Jack, you want to go first? Oh, that's really hard. So, I've I've been weighing this back and forth because... I like what bullet does and what it pioneered and everything about it. Um, you know, various characters in it, um, especially obviously Steve McQueen being just cool under pressure and his build up to being the person that has to resort to violence at the end of the movie. And I like the jazz soundtrack and everything that kind of lends to that era. The fact that the city feels alive, the car chase, all of it is something that I really do love. But at the same time, Drive has this very intentional quality to it that I really love. And I love the soundtrack selection, the, as you said, dreamlike nature of it and the weird, is this kind of how it's going down nagging feeling in the back of your mind? And I also find that Ryan Gosling to be really impossible to look away from while he's doing the things that he's doing throughout the Oh, film. I thought you were just going to say because he's so handsome. Also that, but besides that, like he truly just embodies that character incredibly well too. And I think for everything that it has going for it, um, it kind of ekes it out for me. I like drive just a little bit more, but I still love both. And I find it to be, Interesting how the concept of a loner working on, again, both sides of the law here and resorting to violence as like their final breaking point um, while it happens later in Bullet, um, kind of a fascinating thing that you can do different things with. Um, And yeah, Drive just for some reason has this feel to it that I think is more my kind of wheelhouse. Aaron? (laughs) Um. I both movies are are fantastic, you know. It's just an honor to be nominated. <laughs> um I think I think Drive does what Bullet could be a lot better. 
and well, the I mean, benefit of 50 years of filmmaking. yeah the benefit of bullet going first and like right. 50 years of filmmaking and i think like a lot of like study of film as an art and how to communicate these things there is like don't remake bullet like do please not. yeah <laughs> but there's maybe an edit of bullet that definitely st- is right up there with drive. Okay. What I mean, would you, what would you cut them? I mean, uh, I'm not a professional Hollywood editor. Um, We're, none of us are professional anything. So let <laughs> I don't claim to be. I mean, we have been podcasting for a while. Yeah. We're Just professionally unprofessional. <laughs> um, way to put it. I mean, maybe not even an edit. You'd need more footage, but I also like, right don't want to see that done to, to drive. Cause I think it, it, it is amazing for, for its context. Um, but I think there's a, there's a perspective from that movie where you spend more time in bullets head. And I think they were getting at it and they were, they were close and, you know, obviously served as an inspiration for a ton more movies, but they didn't quite cross the finish line for me in my jaded 21st century shitty millennial perspective. <laughs> so maybe not even an edit, but a a redo with the benefit right. of time. I definitely believe that uh, I, I think you're kind of on a track there, like a big thing towards McQueen's style is he hated studio interference because this is still like the the studio system it's before new hollywood kicks in and mm-hmm. you get you know the 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 first film school kids you know lucas Scorsese, and all of them that come mm-hmm. out and basically just get independent funding from these smaller things rather than the studios um i believe that what you're talking about like the some of the unevenness like you get that dialogue scene with the the girlfriend just kind of literally saying all these things like I'm mm-hmm. fairly certain I remember something on that, that like McQueen hated that scene. And that's why he doesn't say anything except for time starts now mm-hmm. because he didn't think it was necessary to the story to have this character explain all her feelings. Like I believe that scene was supposed to be either much shorter or a lot more intentional with the emotional play back and forth between their faces than an actual dialogue scene. Yeah. Cause I mean, like you get the point when she shows up to that crime scene, like you get what's going on yeah. in, in her shock and Steve McQueen's like matter of fact or bullet right. matter of fact tone on the, on the phone. Like, and then, like you, got the, it. you don't have to tell me. <laughs> and you know, they, they sell without dialogue up going through that whole sequence at that motel. You sell without dialogue, the, like her worry growing, like he's taking an awful long time. And then other cops show up. It's like, what's, Oh no, is Frank hurt? And she doesn't have to say, my God, is Frank hurt? Like they Mm -hmm. would in the fifties or, you know, early sixties. And she just runs there to him, sees the dead body. And he'd like quickly ushers her away. And then like, she just needs a breather and they, they talk on the side of the road and it, but it just becomes this very stilted compared to the other dialogue scene they had together. That was kind of a little more playful, but a little more natural as well. Yeah. And, um, that goes into McQueen eventually making Le Mans as a completely self-financed for the most part film that like, I think there's like 12 lines of spoken dialogue in that movie or something like that. 
like (laughs) (laughs) going on, like as little talking as possible was a thing at the time. And then you get drive where again, it's very intentionally, it's a Fox searchlight picture. Is it not? Mm. Ooh, question. Film District, Bold Films, MWM Studios. Okay. Um, Regardless, you now have production studios that are more set up to do more artistic expressions of films that have lower budget and smaller releases to a degree. Whereas, you know, this was a studio film. It was Warner Brothers uh, Seven Arts uh, distribution Mm -hmm. and all that. And like, if it was going to be that, it was going to be in all these theaters and it's going to have to be done a certain way. And like, what are they doing blowing all this time and money on closing down San Francisco streets and this car chase and they, they've wrecked three cars and whatnot. Yeah. But I would say for my, my personal preference, I think bullet, it's a more culturally impactful film. I think a problem that you bring up Aaron and Jack is that, because it's so old, the pacing or certain things that they're trying that are experimenting, it is harder for a modern audience to appreciate that as much. And Drive got some of that flack because of how deliberate the pacing is. It's a very slow-paced film. Like It is. There's very few fast cuts in the film aside from the second chase sequence. Uh, Other than that, it's a whole bunch of lingering shots. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. With someone even trying to start a lawsuit for false advertisement because she thought it was going to be, or they, I don't know if it was a woman, thought it was going to be a high-octane, fast and furious heist film. Mm. Which, to be fair, you know, screw the trailers for making it kind of seem like I was just going to say, the trailers did not do it justice. And um, not that the trailers do bullet justice to a degree either. Fair point. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a time capsule as old trailers, too. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think if I had seen bullet first, like in my own personal watch history and had internalized it as the progenitor, I would appreciate it in a different light. And it it sounds like that's kind of where you're at, Matt. Yeah. I also, I also think the, the IMDB rating of bullet is lower because it's such an er touchstone. It's like a citizen cane for certain things. Not to say it is the quality of screenplay as citizen. Right. Um, but it was doing so many things that became either standard or so copied that when people see it now, it's like, well, this is boring. I've seen it before. It's like, yes, because of this film, which (laughs) you brought up, uh, Aaron, that like, you know, this movie, I would say bullet is closer to an eight than drive is. I'd say they're, they're both closer to a 7.7. Yeah. If we're going by a point system to me, they're both eights. That's and again, the only reason Drive for me ekes it out is just because of the intentionality of it and all of the aesthetics going for it, which are again far more the kind of thing that I like. Um, but they stood on the shoulders of giants, and now they're packaging it. They're packaging it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm mad as hell, and I'm not gonna take gonna it take anymore. Take it anymore. <laughs> uh, also holds up. <laughs> so that will do it for us. Oh, I. I do have one more, one more thing. Um, who's the guy who plays Steve McQueen in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Uh, Damian Lewis. 
Damian Lewis. I understand that casting now. He looks exactly like him. Oh, he's dog faced. <laughs> like <laughs> the 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 one problem with his casting in that is he just doesn't have the voice. Mm-hmm. It's a decent American accent. It's just yeah. not Steve McQueen's accent. <laughs> yeah. It, so. But that will do it for us at the Match Cut Podcast. Jack, thank you so much for being our special guest. Glad to be here. This was fun. <laughs> uh, so for the Match Cut Podcast, I've been Aaron. And I've been Matt. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>
I waterproofed my desk. <laughs> so much. <fun>. Okay. <laughs> right.